Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. According to the online Urban Dictionary, today's guest has become a verb. To lupone is, quote, to give an outstanding theatrical performance, to make an audience revel in open-mouthed awe at your unparalleled brilliance, unquote. Don't cry for me, Argentina. The truth is I never left you. All through my wild days, my mad existence, I kept my promise, don't keep your distance. Patti Lapone has 26 Broadway credits to date and has won two Tonys, one for Evita and one for Gypsy. In London, she originated the role of Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard and Fantine in Les Miserables, for which she won an Olivier Award. She's worked in film and on television, most notably as the mom on the ABC drama Life Goes On. Before all this success, Patty was in the first class of the drama division at Juilliard in 1968, which seems like a reasonable place to start dreaming of a career in the theater. But Patty Lapone's story really begins even earlier. I knew when I was a kid that I had a Broadway voice. I wanted to be a rocker because I grew up in that era of transistor radios at the beach. You know, the what Rascals. Music? The Rascals. The Rascals. We started in the 50s, Little Anthony and the Imperials. I mean, all through the 50s and 60s and 70s. I knew I didn't have a rock voice, though. I knew I had Why? a Broadway voice. I, I, these, this is all instinctual behavior, hmm. completely instinctual behavior. And... My mom listened to opera, and my dad listened to jazz. What did he do? He was a principal of an elementary school. On Long Island. On Long Island in Northport. And my mom was a housewife, um, a homemaker. How many kids in your family? <laughs> Twin brothers and me. Right. You know, typical in a ranch house on Long Island, right. right? Typical. I know the drill. Yeah, exactly. And I was enrolled in dance at four years old. 
and I fell in love with the stage. But that wasn't really the first inkling of some sort of connection to the stage. My mother used to troop me out in front of guests to do my Marilyn Monroe imitation, and I don't even know how I came up with this, but I would come out, they'd laugh, and I'd go, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, yeah. I was I was pretty astute when I was very, very young. Yeah. Pretty, so I started dancing, and I fell in love with the audience. And so the performance aspect started very, very young in dance. When Juilliard happened, I only How did it happen? Well, my, my brother attended the dance division of the Juilliard School and told me that they were starting a drama division. I actually had moved into New York City and was auditioning for musicals and working, and I just wanted to be in musicals and hang out in New York City and party. And um, I auditioned and I got in. And what happened in the four years, the course of the four years of the Juilliard School, was I fell out of love with musical and in love with classical theater. And I was actually trained as a classical actress. Mm-hmm. So we did no music. a lot of other great classical actors. Yes. Yeah. Kevin Klein, David Stiers, David Schramm, Mary Lou Rosado. And then, of course, the classes below me uh, have gained more recognition than my class did. We were the very first class. Mm-hmm. But that girl from Northport who's doing Marilyn Monroe impersonations in the ranch house with your family, what's that like for you, that transition to be in that very heady, sophisticated well, environment? Well, it, t- it was tough for me because I was not a favorite at school. My best friend who I met in the first year, Nancy Nichols, was uh, a favorite, and I was not. But Nancy and I would always pal around together and make trouble. But Nancy would get the roles, and I would not. And that went on for several years. I think it was only my third year when I realized that they were trying to throw me out of school. And what they did, they couldn't throw me out because they didn't like my personality. But what they did was they threw every conceivable role in my direction to make me fail as an actor. But what happened was they— Why do you think they did that? They did didn't they like me. they you didn't belong? Yeah, they didn't like me. They Or that—you know, I didn't get cut every year. <laughs> students got cut. So we started right. with 36. It was a weeding program where they wanted totally. to thin out the herd over the years. We ended up with the, uh, 17 of the original 36 in the fourth year. I never got cut. So the, I'm, I'm confused as to why that actually happened, because why didn't they just cut me? Possibly because every role I played, I succeeded in. But what they did was they trained one actor in my class in versatility, and the rest of them were pigeonholed as you know, life will pigeonhole you. The ingenue, into the, the Exactly. The soubrette, the leading lady, the character woman. But I went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, which taught me that I could. Mm-hmm. There were no boundaries. No, and, and and if you look at my history, I've done more plays than I've done musicals. Right. But because I guess the voice is a powerful instrument. Do you know what I mean? And and it's an American uh, cultural event. The American the the broad the musical, not the Broadway. Well, also the music that you've performed. Mm-hmm. When someone is as successful as you, and I've said this to people who uh, have careers in music beyond the theater as uh, as leading actresses in the theater, uh, music distinguishes things because it's a product you can consume anywhere. You know, your career goes to another level where I can drive in my car and listen to the soundtrack right. from Anything Goes. Yeah, I never thought about that. I can yeah. be on the beach and I can listen to the soundtrack from Sweeney Todd. Music performers will always have the upper hand on actors. And But you were saying how you, um, the versatility thing, you, you were almost forced to embrace this versatility to survive. And you graduate from that program. The first class graduates what year? 1972. And where do you go? 
John Houseman. So in, the, in our third year, he presented a season to um, the prominent people in New York theater and critics. And Mel Gussa was the one that said, Mel Gussa was a second string critic for the New York Times. And he was the one that said, why break this company up? Why not form a permanent acting company, which was John's cue. And when we graduated, he handed us our equity card and four years, but we stayed for four years of touring the country, performing classical plays in true revolving rep, which is a different play every single night. So we got even more training because in our first year, we lost several bookings because we didn't know how to tour. We didn't know how to maintain a performance. We only did three at Juilliard, and we had no idea what happened on the fourth. Mm-hmm. And that sounds crazy, but it's we lost. Do you think this acting company uh, idea and the touring was what Hausman had up his sleeve the whole time when he instigated the Juilliard program? No, I don't think so. You know, the training was intense and emotionally intense, psychologically intense, physically intense. But there was one production where the company formed an invisible circle of support around each other. And that was his, he saw the ensemble. And... I remember. I mean, I don't. It, it, it was it Boris Tamarin's uh, production of of You from the Bridge, and oh, I could cry now thinking of it. Mm-hmm. It was an extraordinarily powerful experience to be a student actor, but in a professional mindset. And I remember our curtain call and the pride and the power, and it was an an amazing moment. That changed the course of all of us, and mm-hmm. we understood what ensemble meant, and we understood what support meant, and we understood the power we had as individuals and as actors. And John saw that in his actors. There's been a couple of experiences that I've had that I it's that same ensemble mentality. So that's the other thing I have to interject here. When I left Juilliard and left the acting company and then, of course, landed musicals, we all did, by the way. David Stiers did, Kevin did. Um, Mandy did. We all landed musicals, but the, there's only a couple of times where I felt I had that kind of ensemble, and one was Les Mis in London because it was a Royal Shakespeare Company actors, and the other was Gypsy, where every actor owned their part, big or small, and gave themselves to the play every single night. The other one was Sweeney, too, because and our stage manager said in Sweeney that we acted more like a band than a bunch of actors. Right, right. I love that feeling. So the acting company thing lasts for how long? You did it how many I, seasons? I did it for four years. Nobody goes in for four years anymore. We all did it for four years. I, and you know, I thought about the other—I don't know why we stayed, except we. Th- I'm sure we all went, we are not going to be able to play these parts right. in real life. And that was back in a time when there were the very last vapors in the air here in New York of the old way. And the old way was you went downtown and you sca- carried a spear for Joe or mm-hmm. you carried a spear in the park and there was an apprenticeship in the theater. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have cred in the theater, you know, Raul and Chris Walken and Sigourney and you and Kevin and everybody, everybody who were the princes and princesses and Mandy of the theater in New York, that's where you headed. So when you finish the acting company and you've decided, you know, you've done enough, it's four years, which was atypical of people then, where do you go then? Um, we came home. Kevin and I came home, and so you, you're with Kevin. Yes, Kevin and you were <laughs> Kevin and you were a couple for seven years. We broke up. We got back together. We broke up. We got back together. We broke up. We got back together. Can you imagine the children you would have had with him? <laughs> Good God in heaven! Good God, oh they wouldn't have God. a theater big enough to house that person's <laughs> ego and talent. <laughs> so we both came home, and Kevin went off and did a play 
uh, and I had auditioned for and didn't get uh, The Baker's Wife, Stephen Schwartz's musical, The Baker's Wife, based on Marcel Pagnot's La Femme de Boulanger. But I got a telephone call uh, from David Merrick's general manager, Helen Nickerson, and to ask if I was free because they wanted me to come out to L.A. to replace the leading lady. And I wanted to do this musical so badly. So I went out and I did my first big gut-wrenching, rip-out-of-your-body, squish-heart, <laughs> the most horrible vulnerable experience of my life, The Baker's Wife. Who does he think he is? Who could be as handsome? Who could be as smart as he thinks he is? He just has to snap his fingers. Women fall apart. What does he think? That I'll slink away with him. That I'll follow him right and drooling. It was a, an unbelievable disaster, and we were on the road for six months. What, what made shock. it so? That is, you can that's say. the big question. It is a great idea. It's a great film. It had Stephen Schwartz music. It had Joe Melziner's last sets. Jennifer tipped into the lights, and Theoni Aldridge did the costumes. David Merrick was producing. It had all the potential to be a smash hit, and it got progressive. I joined two days after they opened in L.A., and it got progressively worse for six And you knew it while you were doing months. it. No, I thought it was going to be okay, but I didn't realize that nobody realized what was really going to happen to us and it. And, and what did happen? Well, six people were fired. The show never got better. David Merrick came out. One of the most theatrical moments I've ever had in my career was David Merrick showing up in, in San Francisco. We were performing in San Francisco with no director. We were told to stay after the show. They assembled us on the stage. And there was it was not lit except for the ghost light. David Merrick showed up and stood in front of the ghost light. So he was totally backlit. Mm. Couldn't see his face. Only saw the outline of a long coat and a bowler hat. And proceeded to ask us to go into rehearsal for nothing so that we could save this wonderful show. And it was so dramatic because he's incredibly dramatic. Mm. And so in the light of day, everybody went, what? We had just gotten out of rehearsal for nothing. We were in rehearsal every single day, performing at night for six months. And what we rehearsed that day went in that night only to rehearse the next day. And that stuff would come out. Some new stuff would go in that was not better than what yeah. we had just taken out. You were out. in a laboratory. It w- we were in <laughs> You were in Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory. <laughs> but people were dying. The rats were dying. Yeah, the rats right. were losing air. You were killing a lot of rats. Oh, there. my God. It was so horrible. And, the, you know, there's an expression, Larry Galbart's expression, if Hitler were alive today, his punishment should be to send him out on the road with a musical in trouble. <laughs> I did a movie once, and the movie was going really badly, and said, this is as if the government made movies. <laughs> you know, you, I've always said there's a fine line between a hit and a flop, and it's, you don't know what it is. You don't know why it is a hit, and you don't know why it is a flop. You know, if it's really terrible, you, you know right off the bat, and you're not going to take the job. But if it has the potential to be a hit and ends up being a flop, you can't figure it out. So you do this show, and... When you come out of that, like, what's the lesson for you? Did Was there something you said to yourself, never again am I going to... No, I went into a depression for nine months. I was on Valium to sleep for the six months, and I went into a Valium depression for nine months, gained 40 pounds, woke up, went, what the hell just 
happened. And I couldn't say— Why do you think that is? Like, like you, you care a lot. There's nothing casual about you. There's nothing amateurish about you. You know, you're very serious and you're very dedicated. You're very hardworking along with being very talented. And you feel these wounds. Why do you think that is? Why did it well, affect you so much? Well, our business is subjective. It's all subjective. You know what I mean? You talk to anybody from the baker's wife, and they can remember it as if it was yesterday. And there's blood spilled, and we became blood, a blood family. I just saw Timmy Jerome, who's in Phantom now, and we see each other, and what we recall is that bonding and that horrible experience. And we can talk about it as if it was yesterday. I think it's because, you know, it it happened to us. Of course, it happened to the creators, but they're not on stage. We're on stage. Succeeding or failing in front of an audience. We're on stage being judged by the audience. We're the messengers. We're the ones who take the hit. We take the hit all the time. We're the and, ones who and take the hit. This was really abusive. It was just horrible. I woke up one morning and my face was filled with what looked like whiteheads. The entire face had raised bumps on it. I didn't know what it was. I went to sleep, woke oh, up, God. and the entire face, I, I, maybe it was from the Valium. I have no idea, but I was, right. things were happening to us, physically happening to us. And when does the sun come out for you? When does the sun come out for Patti Lapone career-wise? I think when I go back to work with David Mamet. I go back and work with David. I go into— What do you mean go back? David and I did a play in Chicago. Was that the after Baker's Wife? Was that—I see, I'm trying, to keep, I'm trying to keep it straight. What play did you do with him first? The very first play I did with him was a thing called All Men Are Whores. Kevin, Sam Chuchifis, and I did it at Yale Rep for one night. I said, hey, Dave, we opened and closed in New Haven. And New Haven used to be one of the circuit—you uh, know, when you took a show out of town, your first stop was New Haven. And it was a big deciding factor. Sure. So we opened and closed. We bombed in New Haven. We bombed in New Haven. Well, and from there he gave me a play called The Woods. And what happens when you do The Woods? Well, I go back to what I was trained for. And I go back to an honest environment, pretty much. And you're back to the circle of trust. Yeah. Everything feels right. Yeah. This is more like it. And it's a risk. It's a big risk. I mean, every time I work with David, I learn so much as a human being. What year was that actor. approximately? I think 19, late 1976, 77. So you had a relationship with him. Yes. Well, we met him. For 35 years. Yes, yes. And I will, I will drop everything to do a play by David. Everything. I, I don't care how risky it is. I, I learn so much from David, and I, I, I instinctually have the mammoth speak. That's something that I know how to do, his, his rhythms. Um, and I think it's because, as someone said, I cut my teeth on David, David's words. When, you know, starting with All Men Are Whores and The Woods and The Water Engine and Edmund. I had finished Evita, and I went down to the Provincetown Playhouse at, at the opening of um, Edmund. And I said, why couldn't I have been in this in the back of my head? And not two weeks later, I got a call from Gregory Mosher and David saying, would you replace Linda? Linda's a Chicago actress, and she wanted to go back to Chicago. And I she said, was playing what? The, the wife. She came on it. She was at the beginning. In the beginning. That's and she's it. gone. That's it. You know, and then she the, visits the him in prison. The maid broke the dish or whatever it is. Exactly. I'm leaving you. She says, what do you mean you're leaving? Of course we're leaving. We're going to get dressed. We're going to think, no, no, I'm leaving you. What? Do you know this? Well, you know oh, this. You, I, was, I begged Mamma to give me the rights yes. to do the movie, but he gave it to Bill Macy. Yeah. And so I— um, Joined the company, and my agent was so furious with me. He said, this will hurt your negotiational, you know, ability. And I went, for what? 
you know, if anybody in the business knows who I am, they know that this is where I came from before I did Evita. And and they did not want me to go backwards. They didn't want me to go to the Guthrie to do Rosalind and As You Like It. But I was able to work with Liviu Chule, a great Romanian director who just passed, God rest his soul, in his internationally famous production of As You Like It at the Guthrie. I was raked over the coals by the critics. One critic said, you know, basically, what was Evita doing here? And it it was difficult, as you say, to straddle that. But I kept doing it because I was given the opportunity to do it. And I wasn't going to say, no, I have to wait for the next Evita part to come along. Mm. If I waited for the next Evita part to come along. You would wait I'd 10 s- years. I'd still be waiting. Right. Is Evita the, the next big thing for you? I mean, Evita, I'm, I'm trying Evita, to think. I, mean, I did in my stage recollection, Evita is the big thing. Evita is. is the thing that, that changes your life. That was 1979. But in between. And how does that happen? I audition. Um. Joanna Merlin is Hal Prince's casting director, and of course— Hal directed. Hal directed. And as I said earlier, all of those people had come to see this acting company at Juilliard, uh, this ensemble. They were aware of you, They were aware, yes. And so I was brought in for a preliminary audition, and then I was told to make myself free, make sure that I made myself free for the final callback. And as I understand it, Hal wanted to cast actors in the role— the roles, um, as opposed to just musical theater people. So I think that's one of the reasons why I got in there, because I, he knew, they knew I was an actor. In between, there were several plays. There was stage directions by Israel Horowitz, John Glover, Ellen Green, and I down at the public, while Merrill's doing— um, Yeah, you're doing everything you can to scratch that itch of yours and not become a star. No, I get it. No, yeah. no, it was, yeah, the, no, uh, yeah, it was the, it was the available work. We're about to talk about the moment when perhaps one of the greatest musical stars of the last 50 years is born on Broadway. What so a let's compliment, talk, thank So you. let's talk about how that, the moment this happens. Hal Prince wants people who can act and sing, and you go to the, make yourself available to the final callback, and what happened? How do you feel when you're in that room? Well, I, I was very mad because I was actually shooting 1941, and there was a little issue about, about Spielberg's letting, movie. Yes, right. about letting me go. And the producer said, if you're not back tomorrow or the next day, you're, you'll never work in Hollywood again. So I left... Hollywood with those words ringing in my ear, and I woke up in New York to the 1978 blizzard where there were like two feet of snow on the ground. Couldn't get back to L.A.? I couldn't get back to L.A. Did they no. fire you? No. Um, Christopher Reeve got me on the plane. I only missed three hours of shooting. When they said, how'd you get here? I said, Superman. Superman. <laughs> <laughs> I did. It's absolutely That Juilliard true. camaraderie. Exactly. So I went to the final callback, but I was really mad because I didn't want to do this musical. I didn't like the music. I thought, Which one? Evita. You didn't like it? Uh-uh. No. What, what specifically? You're a smart woman. What specifically didn't you like? Well, I didn't like, I heard the White Album, the Julie Covington, David Essex, Colm Wilkinson. Very rocky, weird music. But ro- it rocked out a lot. And I thought, what's the matter with me? I'm a rocker. I want to be a rocker. Right. It was Here's your really, chance. really high. It didn't grab me. I mean, I grew up on Rodgers and Hammerstein. I grew up on Julie Stein, Meredith Wilson, Stephen Sondheim. This was not a musical to me. This was... Noise from Britain. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't. It just didn't. It did. So how did you go out there and do it? I went out and and the final audition. I was wet from my knees down. I was wearing sneakers and jeans, not knowing it was going to snow. Who you know? I did so stupid. I didn't look at the weather report. Yeah. I went out there and I blasted, literally blasted through Rainbow High, Buenos Aires, and Don't Cry for Me, Argentina. And there were tears in my eyes. Apparently, 
And there were there were tears of rage, <laughs> certainly right. not tears of right. And I left, and um, I got I got a call on the set. I made it back, and I, I got a call on the set in the makeup trailer, and they said uh, you've got the part. And I started to cry again because I had promised David that I would reprise the Woods <laughs> at the Public Theater with Ulu Grossbart directing. <laughs> what I love is that you're going to blow your Hollywood film career. To go to a musical you don't even like. And then that one they offer to you, you're not sure you're going to take that because you got to go to another little mammoth play. Well, I had been trained to be an actor, and I thought my responsibility was to act at every possible opportunity, and especially good opportunities. Keep working. To, uh, you know, if it's worthy material. Put it, put, you know, apply your craft. And if it's good material. And, and I, David and I forged a friendship and a bond, and I didn't want to let him down. David and I became really, really good friends. David lived on 20th. Kevin and I lived on 21st Street. He'd come over all the time for breakfast. We'd walk around. We'd go do antiques. I'm going to start calling you Al, by the way, because you keep changing the subject. What <laughs> happened with Al? How did Al mean. get you to do that material? And it, and it became what it became. Well, no, I knew I had to do it. I cried because I knew that I would have to. I couldn't do the woods, and I had to do Evita because I knew I wanted to work with Hal, and I knew that it would change the course of my career. You knew going in that it was going to be a hit. There was so much hype before. Have they done it in London? Yeah. So it was a big hit in London. Huge hit. In and London. you were in the American cast. It was right. a huge hit in London. So you knew this was a big opportunity. And for there you. was hype. You can't believe that was my first indication that this was going to be a tough experience because it was. I went. How am I going to get around the hype? It was the first musical that I was aware of that had so much pre-opening sure. hype. The modern way. Not even buzz. You know, not word of mouth. Hype. Yeah. Media hype. And it was created, of course, by really useful, by Andrew's company. Do you know what I mean? That's how he operates. And it was frightening. And I had no vocal technique. So now this thing is all hyped up. You've been through everything you've been through. You've had some good times and some tough times, and you've worked hard. God knows, four years in the road with Hausman and that company. And you step out for the Broadway opening, the opening of Evita. What was it like for you? How did that evening I go? I had the flu. Perfect. Of course you did. Yeah. And I threw up in the sink. Before I sang Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, I'm sure it was a combination of I – got, I, I got extremely bad notices opening in L.A. and extremely bad notices opening in San Francisco. And Hal came to me and said, we're going to laugh about this in 20 years, Patty. They pulled the entire company together. And he said there was an article coming out in Susie Knickerbocker's column the next day that I was going to be fired and that Actors' Equity was waiting to clear Elaine Page to take my place. And this was in the newspaper. She's a Brit. Yeah, she's the one that originated in London. I'm dealing with all of this press of me being fired and me not being able to sing the part and still going on for my throwing up in the sink. Well, that was uh, that was opening night. And so, so you go out and do the opening, and what happens? Bad reviews again. Actually, they weren't bad. They they dismissed Hal. And this is a this was an innovative. This was an innovative concept, an innovative production. They dismissed. Hal, and they barely touched on Mandy and me, and that's worse when you're ignored. It's one thing if they're passionate and you're bad and passionate when you're good, but when you're ignored. And Mandy and I, at one point, I said, you want to go out for a drink? He said, yeah, and we we were on 52nd. I think that's where the the Broadway theater is. And we walked down 8th Avenue, and simultaneously we burst into tears. I mean, we worked hard in those parts, and then to be ignored— 
is tough. And then, of course, nine months later, they give us the Tonys. When you win the Tony, did, was it any vindication for you at all, or was it just an empty? Oh, empty? of course. It was. So oh you felt God. good. When you won, oh, how did you feel? Oh, yeah, it's such a relief. It was such a relief <laughs> because, really, if you did read Did it wipe my... everything away? Kind no, of? because I was still performing and still scared out of my mind every night. I envied Mandy because Mandy was just all over the place. He didn't have a problem singing it, so he literally, he told me, uh, he told me something the other day. We were talking about Evita, and he said, well, Hal told me to go. He wanted me over there. And I said to Hal, how do I get there? He said, I don't know. Just get there. And so that's where he does a jeté across the stage. And I went, I would see it every night going, why is Mandy doing that? And it was because Hal told him to get, get there, get there. there. And, and Mandy put how. it in. He didn't care how, so Mandy put it in. And it became part of his performance. Sure. And, and so... And I suppose in that respect, Hal gives the actor freedom, but I didn't have that freedom because I was so tied up in a knot because I didn't think I could sing it. I want to be a part of the Buenos Aires Big Apple. Would I have done what I did if I hadn't thought, if I hadn't known we would stay together? Really, and you know, when you in a rehearsal period, you know this, you have to do it over and over and over again. So you're not hitting that D in screw the middle classes once. You're not hitting that G in screw the middle classes once. You're doing it over and over right. again. I didn't have vocal technique to, to know that I didn't have to hit those notes every day. I didn't have vocal technique. I got it during the run by, from a, a kid in the chorus. Who? David Vosberg. I came off stage in in He gave you LA. tips. I, they got him a piano. They put a piano in my dressing room, and he, I, he worked with me an hour every single day before the show. He would come to me and um, work out of the goodness of his heart. David and, Vosberg. David Vosberg. Where is he now? Uh, he's in Ohio. He's a director of opera. But he would um, give me a vocal technique. He would warm me up. And the, the, the difficult thing was to, be, to apply what he had just taught me that night because I would do one thing right, something else would go disastrously wrong. But at least I was getting a technique to sing that part. He saved my job. And they they knew that and they paid him. Now you say, when you talk about this, you talk about the tension and the anxiety and the fear and you, you don't really want to necessarily be doing a video because you got another David play and this and this and that. When did it start to become fun for you? Oh, Anything Goes was a ball. Okay, so talk about that. Why? Oh, because of the material and because of the cast, and and it was hysterical. I Who mean, directed you? Jerry Zachs, and Jerry did a great <laughs> job of directing. And he's tough. Yes, he is. Yeah. And But, Demanding. however, these were the, the way musicals used to be written. You'd have a joke coming, and then a, a gorgeous song. The material was so ripe and so beautiful. If I was in a bad mood, all I had to do was hear that. And okay, I know where I am yeah, tonight. Exactly. Just looking at the audience and seeing tears of joy from laughter. The only thing we are as actors are messengers. That's all we are, correct? We are delivering the playwright's intention through the concept of the director. And I come on stage, if I feel confident in the role, then I give it away. I give it away anyway, but it's all about them. So I have to go out there and love them 
And I do. And I think they see that. They can relax with me because they know I'm giving it to them. I'm not, you know, there are some actors that don't want to be on stage. Well, it's funny and you, you say that. Cause you know that. Well, because you just nailed it. Because Patty Lapone to me as a woman who comes out there, when the first thing she does, she's up there and she's like, you know, how's everybody doing? It's like a little moment, like a nightclub singer, like, you know, how you all doing tonight? Without saying how you all doing tonight. Like, just connect to them and let them feel like if there's no place else we'd rather be, is there, than here right now. Well, I think it, our responsibility is to relax them. You've been in an audience, I've been in an audience where we're worried for the performer. And then we're not having the experience. They're paying a lot and if, of— And if I'm worried for the performer, and they and they should be worried for then I'm worried for me because I want to get the F out of there. Yeah. Hello. Our responsibility is the minute we hit the deck is to relax the audience, and that is what is called command. You're the top. You're the Coliseum. You're the top. You're the Louvre Museum. You're a melody from a symphony by Strauss. You're a bindle bonnet. How long did you do Anything Goes? Uh, 15 months, I think. <laughs> 15. Oh, I laughed my ass off in that show. We had such a ball. But then the, and the same thing is, is this this idea that, that someone said to me, why do you like doing the theater? I mean, even now. like, did, did you get it? A lot of actors do it for a period and you get it out of your system. I said, you know, the one thing I've never gotten out of my system is if the play is the right play. I said, I go to work at 6 o'clock. I like to get to the theater early. Me too. And kind of drain the day out of me. And then I go out on stage and I said, you know what I love? I said, I know exactly what I'm going to say. I know exactly what the other guy is going to say for the next two and a half hours. And I know exactly <laughs> how people are likely going to react. I said, how often can you say that in your life that you know exactly what's going to happen? And it's a good thing for the next two and a half hours of your life. I, I never get tired of that. No, and I, it's magical. It's magical. You taught, you said drain the day out. Drain the day out to have a magical night. Right. Do you know what I mean? Really to have to an, an experience with a group of people. Do you know what I mean? Not just your, your fellow actors on the stage, but people that, want, that leave the theater going, oh, my. I mean, I've done that. I've walked out of a production going, oh, my. Oh, 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 oh what street are we on? You know, we've been transported. We've yeah. been taken away. We've drained the day out of yeah. our life. Yeah. And we've experienced something that has changed us. It's another thing I love about our profession, the arts. I mean, you can do that in the, in the movies, too. Was your note, now, as a woman, as an actress who was known uh, for a raft now of these heavy-duty, you know, uh, uh, powerful musical roles, uh, was there another one that I'm missing between uh, – Evita and and uh, no, we did all. I did Oliver. Anything goes. I did Oliver. I did in London. Le, I, no, Oliver here. Les Mis in London. Who were the leads in uh, Oliver? Ron Moody and Graham Campbell. God rest his soul. Ron Moody was reprising his role as Fagin. Yeah. yeah, he was great. Beautiful song. Gorgeous. As long song. as he needs me. Gorgeous. One of the most beautiful songs in all of the oh, musical theater. Oh my God! Yeah, he wrote a great score. Um, and then I went to London and did Les Mis. So Les Mis, you did only in London. Yes. Why? Well, and this because I didn't want to do well, and it's a it's a it's a reason that I have questioned my entire career. When I was at the Barbican rehearsing, the Barbican was then the Royal Shakespeare Company's London home. It felt so much like being in the hallways of Juilliard. It was a maze. The rehearsal rooms. I just felt like I was at Juilliard, and. Um, Trevor actually said to me, if anybody belongs in this production or with the Royal Shakespeare Company, it's you, Patty, because Michelle Saint-Denis was um, an artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Michelle Saint-Denis was one of the co-founders and an artistic director of the drama division of the Juilliard School. So I came full circle, two different countries, but I had come full circle in training. How were the notices for you when you did Les Mis in London? 
I don't even remember, but I won an Olivier Award for right. Fantine, so I have no right. idea. But I'm everybody not, that I know that saw you do it said you were breathtaking in that role, so there was no desire you had. Well, the, what, this is what happened. Two weeks after we opened at the Barbican, I came off stage in my barricade uniform because I was in the barricade scene, and I went, I can't do this in New York. It was an instinct. I can't do this in New York. And I went to the stage door to drop off a name to the stage door man, and Cameron McIntosh, the producer, you know, besides the RSC, was standing there, and I said, Cameron, I can't do this in New York. I was the only American in the company. He said, I know the part's too small. I said, no, that's not it. I said, this is my company. I realized when I came off the stage that I was in a, the perfect theatrical environment, in the perfect play, with the perfect cast, and I didn't want anything to touch that memory. And I made it— It would be different in New York. Totally. It would be a reproduction of this yeah. production. Right. And I didn't think that I would be— And, you know, I've never known whether I made the right decision or not, but— What did you do after that? LBJ. I came back to do LBJ. And you know, then, but, but now, now talk about film in your life now. Because in and around all of your historic career in the theater, what is going on for you film-wise? Nothing. And I wish it did. Not nothing. I mean, what? But minor. But I don't know why I don't get cast or I don't know why that, you know, and now it's probably too late because I'm one of those women that are too old for Hollywood. Or maybe maybe I'm coming into my film career now. I don't know why it didn't happen, but it didn't. Um, I did Driving Miss Daisy and Alfred Urey was responsible for my casting in that. I did. Um, and What's then, the best experience you had making a film? All of them. Working, Enjoy especially it. working with the Australian directors, Bruce Beresford and Peter Weir. What did you do with them? We did Witness right. with Peter Weir, and I did Driving Miss Daisy with um, Bruce Beresford. Did you ever work with Lumet? Very little. I had a tiny, tiny little part in something. I can't remember what it was, but I thought, oh, my God, I would love to have worked with him. Who were the stars? Um, I, I don't remember <laughs> the whole experience. I was I, Literally, I had one tiny scene, and I can't remember if it was a movie or I can't remember. Television series? Could have been a television series, but I can't remember. No, what about, what oh, about, what about uh, television? Life Goes On for four years. Right. And then, you know, guest spots here and there. But it was it's odd that, that, that I haven't had that opportunity. Um, you probably did have that opportunity, but you passed on it, correct? No, I don't think I did. Didn't the chance to do a television series come your way? No, I, it's interesting. I'm a hard sell, Alec. I've been cut at the studio level on auditions in California because mm-hmm. they didn't believe I was I could do this or that. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's I'm a hard sell in California. I'm a hard sell in movies. I'm a hard sell in TV. You know, I'm always a hard sell. I could tell you a story right now, but I can't. I've been asked to audition for a musical, and it's 25 years since I've auditioned for a musical. When does it stop? Coming up, Patti LuPone talks about the most painful loss of her career, her subsequent illness, and how she recovered from both. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. But the time has come at night With a voice as soft as thunder
Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. You dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more more info now right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit for 90 years we've been right here right now Right Rug Flooring. I can make your sad heart sing With one love you'll know All you need to know This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Patti Lapone originated the role of Norma Desmond in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Sunset Boulevard in London. She was set to move with the show to Broadway until she found out she was being replaced by Glenn Close. To say she was devastated is an understatement. You know, there's always going to be some kind of stuff going on in a musical. That's just the nature of a musical. But it was a great company. We had a great time. It was the exterior information that was coming to me that was very painful. I mean, clearly when I didn't get the reviews Andrew wanted me to get, I was on the chopping block. But I didn't find that out until after Glenn Close opened in New York and Vincent Canby gave her this review against my bad review. Meantime, I'm getting standing ovations in in London. And there's nothing about me in the press in London because I show up every night. I'm turning in my performance. Yeah, but Andrew wanted something else, and the way they got me out was the way they were going to get me out was to have me quit because of the in, the barrage of negative publicity. And my agents and the lawyers said, "Stay on stage." And I don't know if it was worth it because it was really painful. And you did months before I closed. I got a telephone call from my agent. I'm in the dressing room, getting ready for the show. I call my my agent. Called. He said, "Are you sitting down?" I said, "Yeah." And he said, "You've been fired. Glenn Close is replacing you in New York." And I went. And I got up and had batting practice in my dressing room with a, you know, a floor lamp and left. I, they could hear me crying and screaming. And the company came up and uh, company manager, I said, I've been fired. I said, I'm leaving. I'm going. Bye. I can't take this anymore. And if people say, what would you do if you saw Andrew again? I said, it's not what I would do. It's what my husband would do. Oh. Because whatever 
I had to absorb, I then took out on my husband when I came home. And that was like I went into therapy. I was on Prozac. It was like a it was like a long healing process because I had to absorb it, and I couldn't. There was no place I could release it because I had to perform every night. And um, that, but that company was extraordinary, and we had a great time. We had a great time. So after that, you do Sweeney. Then the next musical I do is Sweeney with John Doe. Oh well, then it's two thousand. This is interesting. <laughs> I come home beat up emotionally and also physically. I find out. Well, through a routine eye examination that I am in the middle of detached retinas in both eyes. There's like 400 shots of laser in one eye, 250 in the other eye. Kevin Anderson gets into a life-threatening motorcycle accident, and Bob Avey and the choreographer comes down with a really, really severe case of, I don't know, shingles or something. So three of us are manifesting illness at the end of this yeah. experience, which yeah. was so bad. So I take time to heal. And I do a movie. I do bits and pieces. But the next b- big thing that comes, comes on the heels of breast cancer. They say, do you want to play Nellie Lovett in Sweeney Todd with the New York Phil, Bryn Turville, playing Sweeney? I went, first thing I said to Steve, no, because I've never been cast in a Sondheim musical. They said, yes, he gives the approval. I said, of course I do. But this is a year earlier. Within that year, I find out that I have breast cancer. And what happens is I deal with it. There's nothing else I can do but deal with it and go through radiation. And on my last day of radiation, start rehearsal for Sweeney Todd with the New York Phil. And it's that's one for the Phil. Yes. The quintessential New York moment. The New York Philharmonic on a New York stage in a New Yorker's production. And that was an unbelievable experience. Here we are, hot from the oven. What? is that? It's priest. Have a little priest. Is it really good? Sir, it's too good, at least. Then again, they don't commit sins of the flesh. So it's pretty fresh. Now, uh, let's talk about Mammoth's last play. So here, your last venture in New York is you with your old buddy. Mm -hmm. So he calls you. Mm -hmm. He's got the play, and he called you. I called him. You did. I saw November, and I saw after the play, I saw his his wife, Rebecca Pigeon. I said, Rebecca, I'm hitting David up for a play. It's too long. It's too long that we've worked together. And I wrote him a letter, and I said, I don't want a relationship to end with the old neighborhood. I said, let's do something. And then he called me, and he said, do you know who Kathy Bodine is? And I did, but I didn't. And and then he started to tell me about he was was thinking about writing a play about the weatherman or the or an mm-hmm. anarchist. And I went, oh, cool. And then, then I found out, uh, this was last year, and then I found out that the play was being done in London. And I went, no, 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 man. I said, I have to play this part. This yeah. is, and I wrote to him and I said, is this the part we were talking about? He said, they don't want me in London because they don't want me in London, but can I do it in New York? And he called me and said, screw London, let's do it now. So that's how that happened. I knew it was a risk, but that, you know, you, I always take a risk with David. And I... Had you been directed by David before? Mm-hmm, a lot. More often than not. So you were not. comfortable with him in both very, aspects. Very, and And we talked about, because I came and saw you, that last performance. And we talked about how uh, the financing and the financiers oh, themselves gosh. have changed a yeah. lot, which is if they don't get those results very, very quickly, no. they, they jump. That's right. They put the parachute on the This was jump. a risky play. And you know what? Broadway should be what Broadway is supposed to be, which is a vehicle for every idea. And I also am frustrated with the producers that have made gobs of money 
They should have a levy tax, uh, a tax levied against them. They should open a black box theater. They should support all the new playwrights and composers. There should be a great deal of support. Art is the soul of a nation, and our art is not being supported being or fed. developed. Yes, and it's very, very, very depressing. It's very depressing. I, if I go back on the stage in New York, I'm going to find out who the producers are and who their partners are, and I'm going to sit down and talk to them, and I want to find out what their marketing campaign is, what their right. market. you know. You I need just some can't. answers going in. Yes, you definitely, and I want to pay and play, which you don't have pay or play on Broadway. You don't have that, but I, you know, they don't think we take the risk with them. We most certainly do. Actors well, do. we book out. The pay or play concept as in films is important because we book out. And sometimes you've got to take a deep breath and go, maybe I shouldn't care so much. I don't know whether that's true, Alec. You would, it it's would tough re- not to. It would reflect in your performance. Right. Do you know what I mean? I think that you can see when people care and when you, and audiences can see when they don't care. Because you, you seem like someone in the years I've bumped into you, run into you, known you, known you better – you seem to care the exact same amount as you used to. I love what I do. Right. And I love the audience, and I love the fact that I get to do it. And I love, I, I love our craft very, very much. And it's, in our, it's a noble craft. We have a responsibility to it and to the audience and to the playwright and to the message. I won't ever care less. If the sky should fall into the sea And the stars fade all around me all the times that we have known here I will sing a hymn to love next month Patty Lapone will go on a national tour with her concert entitled Faraway Places this is hymn to love from the CD of the same name her book, Patty Lapone, a memoir, is now available both in hardcover and as an ebook. So the last thing I want to say to you is a comment and a question embedded in a comment. And that is, and I want to say this as carefully as I can because I don't want to get myself in trouble. Watching you perform, Patty, sometimes, it's like having sex with you. I mean, it's like a sexual <laughs> what a experience. Compliment. It's like sex. Oh, Alex. When you do what you do, it's like, it's like when, and when you're done... I almost get this feeling like you're looking at me personally, looking at me going, you really enjoyed that, didn't you? That was good for you, wasn't it? Do you realize, my question is, do oh, you realize the effect you have on people? Do you know? Well, When you come out there, can you feel how much they're digging what you do? You must be able to feel it. Well, I, I don't know if, the, I, I don't go out there going, they're going to dig me. I go out there and I do know that, that the, the people that have come to see me know that I have them in mind and... That they, I already have them on my side. They know that I'm doing it for them. They, it just, it could be a persona, it could be a, a body language thing, but they know that I know they're there. And the difference is, when when actors don't acknowledge the audience, the audience can't come. Mm. When an actor acknowledges the audience, then you can have a moment of ecstasy. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.